I love the miracle that Jesus performed for a little girl in Mark chapter 5. Do you remember the account? Her daddy, Jairus, had walked a long way just to be able to reach Jesus and ask for his help. And when he got there, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly, Jesus, I know it's a long way back to my house, but, but would you please come with me? Just put, my, put your hands on my little girl because she's seriously ill and only you can heal her. And Jesus gladly responds. He's eager to help, so they begin the long journey back. And yet, along the way, some friends show up, the friends of Jairus, and say, hey, don't bother. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's not going to do any good. Daughter's dead. You know, you talk to people in the medical field, and they'll tell you the legal definition for death is the cessation of all brain function. Because once you reach that point, there's no coming back. Once you reach that point, the results are irreversible. So when the friends show up and say, hey, don't bother your daughter's dead. Hey, it's no point. I mean, no, there's no point making any effort now because the situation is hopeless. And yet that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to this story because how many times do we find ourselves in a similar, similar set of circumstances where we feel like, why bother? Why bother praying? Why bother talking to the Lord? It's not going to do any good. Our situation's hopeless. Hey, I'm so far out of shape. Why bother trying to learn how to eat right and exercise? Now, what good is it going to do me? Or, hey, my marriage is so far gone, why bother going to see the counselor? Or what could he do for us at this point? Or, hey, I'm so far in debt, why bother trying to put a budget in place? It's not going to get us anywhere. Or maybe you're a student at the university and you think, why bother trying to stay pure when all my friends are messing around sexually and they're constantly making fun of me because I'm trying to guard my virginity? Why bother? You ever thought that? And yet it's those seemingly hopeless situations where Jesus can actually make a difference because he's not like anyone else. You remember how the Bible defines God? The book of Romans chapter 4. What is it that makes God, God? Well, listen to how the Bible answers that question. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. It says he is distinguished. He is set apart from everybody else in two ways. Number one, he gives life to the dead. Number two, he calls into being that which is not. Out of nothing, he can make something. And not just anything, out of nothing, he can create something that's grand and glorious. And he proved that in his work of creation. But not only that, God can reverse the irreversible. He can take what seems to be dead and gone and absolutely hopeless and suddenly give it life again. Now stop and think how incredible that is. You know, we admire people who can look at this dismal situation and say, hey, don't quit yet. I see some potential here. And so they take that dilapidated old barn and they renovate and transform it into this exclusive country getaway. And we think, my, how did you do that? I didn't think that was possible. Or they take over a company that's failing and on the verge of bankruptcy and they, they turn it around and transform it into a leader in the marketplace. And we think, how could that be done? People who do those kind of things, man, they get paid all kinds of money because most people don't have that kind of ability. The ability to turn things around. And yet what those people do is not even close to what our God can do. He not only takes people in situations that seem to be very challenging, he takes things that are impossible to turn around and still turns it around. Example, look at Jairus, what Jesus did for Jairus and his 12-year-old girl. When everybody else is showing up and telling Jairus, hey, give it up, there's no hope now. Nothing can be done. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the Lord anymore. And yet Jesus said, no, do bother me. Continue to ask for my help because I can do things nobody else can. Let me show you how I can handle this situation. And so they proceed on to Jairus' house and Jesus walks into the bedroom of that little girl and proceeds to do what nobody else in the course of human history has ever been able to do. He gives her life again. 
See, Jesus really is in a category all by himself. So don't ever be afraid to bother him. Don't ever hesitate to tap him on the shoulder and ask for his help when you hit a wall or you run into a dead end because Jesus can do what nobody else can. But the story's not over. And for me, it's the last part that is the best part. After Jesus raises the girl from the dead, of course, everybody's astonished and they're praising Jesus, and rightfully so. But while everybody else has got their attention focused upon Jesus, Jesus still has his attention focused upon that little girl. He's not through helping her. And it's what he does next, after raising her from the dead, it's what he does next that shows me how much he really cares. He turns to the parents and says, this child's hungry. Let's give her something to eat. See, her growling stomach was just as important to Jesus as her beating heart. It wasn't enough that he raised her from the dead, but now that she's got this new life, Jesus wants to make sure that she's going to be able to enjoy that new life. So he continues to provide for her. And the same concern that Jesus had for that little girl is the same kind of concern that he has for you and he has for me. And he cares not just about what's happening here in this world. He's concerned about what comes next. What happens after we die? You remember the promise that Jesus made to us in John chapter 14? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And there's the key words, for you. He's thinking about you and your needs and what's going to work best for you in that new world that he's creating for us. You know, you ever, <coughs> excuse me, ever decorated a room for somebody special? And isn't it true when you do something like this, you do everything you can in order to make that room fit, just really suit that person and their particular personality? You know, if it's your daughter, you do everything you can to make that room pretty. You hang up her pictures on the wall. You, you make a place for her hobbies. You add all this frilly stuff so everything in that room becomes elegant and nice. But if you're preparing that room for your son, you take a much different approach. You hang up posters of Stephen Curry and Andrew Luck and maybe some posters from the Star Wars movies and you clear off a space on the shelf for the, all the baseball trophies and the model cars. Or if it's grandma that's moving into the house, and you want to make a room for her, just for her, something that she's going to feel comfortable with, what do you do? You put a nice rocking chair in the room. You fill the shelves with her favorite books. You put that quilt on the bed that has the names and the handprints of all her grandkids. See, depending on who it is, you, you prepare that room with great care because you want to make sure that room fits the one who's going to stay there. Well, the Bible says that's the kind of preparations that Jesus is making for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter talks about it in the scripture that we're going to study today. He says what Jesus has prepared for us is absolutely fabulous. We have something to look forward to. Let's take a look. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come. Now get that. He's coming. It's not a probability, it's a fact. He will come. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus. And I want us to be careful with this. I want to make sure you don't get the wrong impression that all this time between his first coming and his second coming, a couple thousand years here, don't get this impression that since he's been gone, he's gone some way, where off, you know, way off yonder, way off in the distance. He's out of touch. He's disappeared. He has no clue what's going on. So that day that when he returns, he's going to say, hey, catch me up. Let me know what's been happening. What do I need to correct here? That's not the way it's going to be. Even right now, the Bible makes it clear, Philippians chapter 4, the Lord is near. He is present, and He is very much involved in this world. It's just that right now, His presence is invisible. So that means for us as believers, though we know that God is here, sometimes it's not always clear. We don't always see how He's at work in our circumstances. And for the non-believer, it's just not obvious at all. But know this, He is still very much involved in His world. So when the Bible talks about the second coming or the return, it means it's the day when what's been invisible now becomes visible. So that now every eye, whether believer or not, 
every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord, because now it's obvious to everybody. Oh, I can see it. He's in charge. And just to let us know how special that day is going to be, the Bible uses four different words, because one word's not adequate enough to capture what that day is going to be like. The Bible uses four different words to let us know what the second coming, the day that he appears, what that day is going to be like. One of the words the Bible uses is the word epiphania. We get our word epiphany from this. You know, you and your team there at the office, you're, you've been working on this project for months, when all of a sudden you hit a wall. And you just encounter this problem, this massive problem, and nobody can figure out what to do. I mean, for days you've been scratching your head, and, and nobody can come up with any kind of solution. It's just like everybody is stumped. When all of a sudden an idea pops into your head, you have an epiphany. Instantly, everything just becomes crystal clear. Oh, why didn't I think of this before? I see it. I know exactly how to fi fix this. And all of a sudden there's this tremendous feeling of relief. Hey, everything's going to be okay. That's exactly what the Bible says that day is going to be like when Jesus shows up, when he appears. That's often how the Bible will translate that word epiphania, his appearance. He appears. And when we see him, we're going to, ah, oh, Jesus is here. And no more worries. No more frustration. He knows how to fix everything. Now that he's here, everything's going to be okay. Second word that the Bible uses to talk about the second coming of Jesus is the word apocalypsis. It literally means to uncover or to unveil. It's what we use for the last book of the Bible. We call it Revelation because it's that word, the apocalypse. It's in the book of Revelation that God pulls the curtains back. So now we can see how he is at work in our world right now and what he's going to do for us in the future. Here's the idea behind that word apocalypsis. Imagine, remember that day when you were a kid and you came home from school, hadn't had anything to eat for hours and you're just famished. I mean, just as hungry as you could be. And yet the first thing you walk through the door and you're hit with this wonderful aroma mom's cooking something for supper and boy does it smell good the mouth begins to water the stomach begins to growl so you sneak into the kitchen to try to get a peek what what is she fixing? boy whatever it is it's got to be something good you sneak into the kitchen you see this huge pot on the stove so you go over and you lift the lid you uncover so now you can see what it is it's her world famous chili I mean, she's got this secret recipe. Nobody makes chili like your mom does it on a cold day. That hot chili, that's perfect. And all of a sudden you're excited because you can see what you're about to taste. So it is on the day when Jesus appears. For the first time, we're going to see that new home that he has prepared for us. And we're literally going to be bursting with excitement because of how he's provided for us. A third word that the Bible uses to, to describe the second coming of Jesus is the word parousia. And it's a word that literally means the presence. And often it's translated in the Bible when he comes, when, when he arrives. In the ancient world, parousia was a technical term to talk about the visit of a king or some royal official. And the reason why they were coming to this little village was not just to meet the people. It was because this town, much like Flint, Michigan, this town had an issue. They had a problem. Man, it was way above their pay grade. They just didn't have the resources to handle something like this. But the king does. So the king's coming so he can bring about a change for everybody. And then the fourth word that the Bible uses to talk about the second coming of Jesus is the word that Peter uses here. Hamera, the day of the Lord. Or verse 12, we'll talk about the day of God. You ever had somebody come to you and say, this is your day, your day. What do they mean? Maybe it's your birthday, or maybe it's the day of your graduation, or maybe it's the day of your wedding, or maybe you're celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary. This is your day, meaning you're the one that's going to be in the spotlight. 
all friends, family, relatives, everybody else has set everything aside just so they can come here and be with you. And they're bringing gifts and they're going to take you out to your favorite restaurant. And all day long, we're just going to be celebrating who you are and what you have accomplished. So Peter says on that day when Jesus appears and he becomes visible to everybody, it's going to be his day. All eyes riveted upon him because now for the very first time we are going to see Jesus face to face and he will be standing there in the fullness of his glory. Now, Peter goes ahead here in verse 10 to show us some of the different ways in which he's going to display his glory. And one of the ways he does that is because of what he removes, what he begins to remove from this world, everything that is wicked and wrong. Notice how he says this. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, come suddenly and unexpectedly. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So every day you need to be ready. But though he comes like a thief suddenly, unexpectedly, he doesn't come quietly. You're not, nobody's going to miss this day. You'll know when he arrives. Though he comes suddenly like a thief, the heavens, everything in the sky will begin to pass away with a roar, a roar like a lion. And the heavenly bodies, the lights, the sun, moon, and stars will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth, the land, and everything on it, and the people who live on it, and the works that they do, will now be exposed. It'll become clear what's good, what's bad, what needs to stay, what needs to be removed. Understand, just a little parenthesis here. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, that's fine. That's good. But it will read a little bit differently. You get to the end of verse 10. It talks about how everything will be burned up, absolutely destroyed. And so God's just going to take everything, destroy it all, and then just start from scratch and make everything new, everything brand new. And that may be the way that it happens. But personally, I just think this translation, the ESV and NIV and some of the others, is a little bit better translation. That everything's going to be laid bare, exposed. Instead of making all new things, he's going to make all things new. In other words, the fire that we're talking about here is a purifying fire. It's like the, Peter, the fire that Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1. We talked about putting the gold in the blazing hot oven so you can remove the dross. It's like what the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 8 when it says all creation, meaning all of nature right now groaning because this is not the world that God originally intended, the way he originally intended it to be. So all of creation right now longing and yearning for that day when Jesus comes, when he arrives, when he appears, not so the creation can be eliminated, but Paul says there in Romans chapter 8, so the creation can be liberated from all of its corruption. So it's a purifying fire in the sense that you take the metal and you put it in the fire and so it can remove the dross. And now that the metal is soft, now you can reshape it into something much, much better. Now, I won't argue this. Whichever way, if you prefer the King James, he, he just burns it all up and he starts from scratch and makes all, everything brand new, or he takes things and makes them new. Either way, know this, Jesus is going to remove everything that doesn't belong. And knowing that that day's coming, what should that mean for us right now? What kind of life should we be living right now? Shouldn't we be making every possible effort to remove everything that's inappropriate and everything that doesn't belong in each one of our hearts? Notice what Peter says in verse 11. Since all these things are going to happen, since all these things are going to be dissolved, everything that is wicked and wrong, what sort of people ought you to be? Shouldn't we be living right now lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, looking forward to, hastening, speeding up the coming of the day of God? Hey, if that day is going to be his day in a special way, why not make every effort to make this day his day too? And because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Well, the part of the glory of the day of the second coming of Jesus, not only what he's going to remove, but the best part of all is what he's going to provide. He's coming here to bring us to a new home, 
to a new heavens and a new earth. And understand, verse 13, what we're going to be reading about here, we're talking about a real place, something solid, something you can taste and touch and enjoy. An actual, the new heavens, new earth, it's an actual physical material world where there'll be opportunities to do all kinds of good things, to explore and discover things, all kinds of pleasures and delights to experience like we've never experienced before. Verse 13, but according to his promise, what promise? I go to prepare a place for you. But according to his promise, we're looking forward. That's what this word waiting means. It's the sense of anticipation. I can hardly wait. We're waiting for a new heavens, a new earth where everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be. When the Apostle Paul talked about the new heavens and new earth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he mainly focused on the body and what kind of body we're going to have in that new place. He talked about how we're going to receive a perfect body so we can live in that perfect world. And to help us understand what that perfect body is going to be like, he used this analogy. He said, think of a seed. Because what you plant in the ground is not anything at all like what you harvest from that ground several months later. I have a packet seeds here, carrot seeds, and the only reason I know that is because of the picture on the front. If I were to open it up and look inside, I'd have no clue what those seeds were, because they're not orange, they're not shaped like a carrot, they're not just a smaller version of the final product. No, because what you plant in the ground is not anything at all like what you pull up from that ground several months later. The final product is always so much bigger and so much better than what you start with. So Paul says, is the contrast between the body we have right now and that actual, physical, perfect body we're going to have in the new heavens and the new earth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he begins to go ahead and explain. Let me, let me go into more detail about the contrast. He says one of the contrasts is this. The body that we have now is perishable. It's subject to disease and decay. It's not going to last forever. One day it's just going to stop functioning and we're going to die. But that new body, that perfect body, it's made to last forever. This body's perishable. That body's not. Or he talks about how this body that we have right now is weak, meaning it's subject to aches and pains. Even those who are physically fit and can run marathons, they still catch colds, they still get the flu, they still have allergies. You know, some kitty cat comes meandering along the front lawn and you, this, suddenly you, this massive bodybuilder, you get reduced to this puffy-eyed, sniveling wreck where for two weeks you feel like a 98-pound weakling until you wait for that allergy medicine to kick in. Even in our prime, we're still subject to accidents and hernias and broken bones. And trust me, it only gets worse as you age. But Paul says, though this body right now is weak, that new body is going to be raised in power. Because it's a body that can do things that's not possible for us right now. Well, Paul goes on and on to describe all those other contrasts. And here's the point that I want to make. Everything that Paul says is true for the body, the contrast between what we have now and what we're going to have then, is also true for the world that we're now living in in comparison to the world we will be living in. You want to understand what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like? Then imagine a place, an actual physical place where the fruit never spoils. And the flowers never wilt and die. A place where ice cream never melts. And every bite of food always tastes better than the bite you had before. Imagine a world where your energy just constantly increases. You never get tired. You never get weary. You never run down. Imagine a world where the mental capacity never diminishes. But your mind just continually expands as you keep learning more and more and more. Imagine a world where your experience of joy just keeps, it just gets deeper and richer with every passing day and only then do you begin to get a hint of what that new world is really going to be like. You see the Jesus that took care of that little girl by not only raising her from the dead but once she had that new life he made sure that every one of her needs were now met in just the right way. That's the same Jesus who has promised to take care of you and take care of me not just now but also in the world to come.
I, I picture it like this. I'll just I'll, I'll close with this and then we'll pray. Imagine you're a homemaker, a wife, and you're having one of those days. You know, everything's just coming unglued. Kids are running wild. The youngest has got a runny nose and a terrible cough. The furnace repairman came by to let you know furnace can't be repaired. It's going to have to be replaced. And in your mind, you're thinking, man, can we afford something like that right now? Dirty dishes still piled up in the sink. Dogs tracking mud all over the cupboard. Got carpet. I mean, everything that can go wrong is going wrong. Just one of those days. Worst of all, that morning when your husband walked out of the door, he let it be known that, hey, I got a bunch of appointments tonight. Uh, don't hold dinner for me. I, who knows when I'm going to make it back home. I, I'm going to be there a long time. I'm just going to be gone. And she feels abandoned. Not much of a day. But the middle of the day, she gets a pleasant surprise. Early in the afternoon, she gets a phone call from her husband. He's just kind of whispering into the phone because he doesn't want anybody else in the office to overhear. But he says, honey, I love you. Man, I've been thinking about you all morning long. I can't get you off my mind. I want you to know I've canceled all the appointments, and I, I, I can take care of that stuff later on. I just want to be with you. So I've already lined up a babysitter, and I'm coming home so I can take you out to your favorite restaurant. I'll see you in just a couple hours. When he finishes that conversation and she sets the phone down, how does she feel? <laughs> Wonderful. Hey, the house is still erect. The kids are as noisy as ever. The, phone, the furnace is still broken. Dirty dishes still piled up in the sink. That dog's still tracking mud everywhere. I mean, all the bad stuff's still there. But now there's a smile on her face and a song in her heart. Why? Because her husband has not left her alone. She's heard his voice. He's whispered in her ear, I love you. And he's coming home be soon because he's got all kinds of wonderful things planned for her. So in the midst of all the troubles, she smiles and she sings because she knows I've got something to look forward to. Listen, as Christians, sometimes our circumstances are just crummy. Let's be honest about it. Sometimes even just downright awful and miserable. And yet in the midst of all the troubles, we still smile and sing. Why? Because we've heard the voice of Jesus and he's coming here soon. And he's coming here so he can take us home, our real home, the place we were made to be. Because in that new place, he's got all kinds of wonderful things planned just for us. So in the midst of all the troubles, we still smile. And we still sing because we know we've got something to look forward to. Let's pray.